Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. It's July 5th as I'm recording this, and I hope everyone in the U.S. is having a fantastic Independence Day weekend. I'm currently living in Spain for a year, and we spent yesterday going to Gibraltar, which is now an English territory, so I find it kind of ironic that on Independence Day, I went to what is effectively an English colony in Spain. Anyway, this episode is in response to the listener who thought I was too lenient on Mary I and her burnings of Protestants in the episode I did um, back in December. While I'm not sure that Mary and I would ever actually be friends, I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for her, and I explained that in my podcast that I did that was the biography of her. One listener thought that I overlooked the burnings and how she got her nickname of Bloody Mary, and I still maintain that her reign was so short and was so easily eclipsed by that of her half-sister, who reigned for so long and with such military successes like the Spanish Armada, and also had the propaganda machine of George Fox and his Book of Martyrs. Um, Mary's burnings of 280 Protestants were intense and publicized, but the tables were turned during Elizabeth's reign when the oppression of Catholics lasted longer, and while it didn't involve the same level of public burnings, it did make the decisions that the Catholics made about whether they would attend their parish church not just one of faith, but also one of loyalty to the state and to the crown, which was enforced through the formation of the first modern spy network that was headed up by Francis Walsingham. But before I get started, just a couple of housekeeping reminders. First, I'm going to be partnering with a friend of mine who runs a tour company and putting together some tours of the UK next year, focusing specifically on the history and music of the 16th century. We'll be going to Evensong services, various early music festivals, etc., depending on the timing. Um, It's not going to be anything major, just a small group of like-minded people who want to explore the music and the history of the times that we talk about here on this podcast. And if you'd be interested in coming with me on a trip like that, drop me a note on Facebook. You can get to me at, of course, facebook.com slash englandcast. 
and it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really, really excited. So um, if you have any interest in that at all, let me know. Second, if you like this podcast, please rate it in whatever service you use to listen to it, iTunes or Stitcher or whatever service you, you listen to it on, please rate it. I would really appreciate it. And third, I do have a fairly new website up at englandcast.com with buttons to donate and links to the Patreon page if you are so inclined to support this podcast. There's also a lot of other information there, not just donation buttons. But um, either way, the donation buttons are there too. And you can either give a one-time tip or make a regular uh, subscription contribution. And either one is appreciated. And of course, just coming by and saying nice things to me is also appreciated. So let's get started. Every Protestant church that is rooted in one of the early forms of Lutheranism has some unique features due to the fact that for a few hundred years after Martin Luther first nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Catholics and Protestants thought it was the decent and holy thing to do to kill each other. This manifested itself in a lot of different ways. Some, like the Spanish Inquisition, were more extreme than others. And I really, really, really want to insert a Monty Python quote about how nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition here, but, oh wait, it's too late. I already did. (laughs) Seriously, if you don't know that skit, it's comedy gold and you really should YouTube it immediately. You can just pause this and go look on YouTube and I'll wait. I'll still be here when you get back. Okay. Sorry, so the Spanish Inquisition. Um, Pretty much every European country saw some level of strife between Catholics and Protestants. In England, of course, the zenith kind of came on in November of 1605 when Guy Fawkes, a Catholic, was found in the basement of the Houses of Parliament with enough gunpowder to blow the whole building sky high, which would have killed not only all of the members of Parliament themselves, but also King James and his son and heir. Fox was caught, of course, and it emerged that he was at the center of this big web of plotters and conspirators, and had an anonymous note not been turned into the king the night before, history would have been very, very, very different indeed. But stepping back 50 years to Elizabeth, though she started out her reign with the famous quote about not wanting to make windows into men's souls, by about a decade into her reign, simply being a Catholic became criminalized. For not attending Protestant services, Catholics faced crippling fines and imprisonment. If they gave shelter to outlawed priests, they risked death. Almost 200 Catholics were executed during Elizabeth's reign, and torture, though it was technically illegal, was used more than in any other time in England's history. An entire espionage network was built by Francis Walsingham to root out plots against Her Majesty And as the threat of war with Spain grew, so did the perceived threat of Catholics, linked as they were, of course, to the Catholics of Southern Europe. So Catholics who chose faith over compromise were called recusants, which comes from the Latin recusari or to refuse. They made up a small percentage of the Catholics, as most chose to pretend. They would cross their fingers during prayers, and then they would have really quick mass and confession when they were at home. But for the ones who refused to compromise, the recusants, life was very, very difficult. Laws passed during her time, during Elizabeth's time, outlawed even owning rosaries, crucifixes, and other Catholic imagery deemed, quote, popish trash by Protestant lawmakers. 
The Protestants greatly feared the recusant branch, making them out to be a far larger number than they actually were. They were a very small minority. But since it was fears, feared that they were backed by hostile European powers, they were feared much more than they needed to be. It hadn't started out that way, of course. We've talked before about the changes in England's religion during the tumultuous reigns of Edward and Mary. Stepping back, for all of Henry VIII's reign, denial of the real presence of Christ in the consecrated bread and wine in the communion was actually a capital offense. You could be killed for denying that the bread and the wine actually turned to the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Um, But of course, when his son Edward inherited the throne, he ushered in a period of fervent Protestantism where beliefs had to radically change or again face the death penalty, something that two or three years before you could go to jail for not believing. Suddenly you could go to jail if you believed it. It it was just kind of a mess. Um, And then, of course, Edward dies young, England does another switcheroo, and his older sister Mary, Mary Tudor, firmly Catholic, moves England back to Catholicism, um, reunites England with Rome, and suddenly, again, it's illegal to believe something that it was legal to believe, and then illegal to believe. It's all very confusing. So, you know, who knows how the average farmer or sailor or anybody handled these changes and how much it affected them on a day-to-day basis. Surely they would have seen changes to their services, which they were required to attend. And, of course, people who held offices of state had to take oaths of obedience. Um, And for members of parliament and the wealthy landowners, many, many sets of eyes would be watching them to see if they would take the required oaths of obedience to the monarch before the pope. When Elizabeth took the throne, she wanted to clean up the muddle that religion had become over the past decade. In 1559, the first religious act of Parliament broke with Rome again after Mary had tried to become reconciled to Rome. The church that was created was a watered-down version of Edward's church. The mass itself was abolished, but the new communion service was artfully crafted to allow some interpretation of a hint at Christ's real presence if someone was looking for it. The law was enforced strictly. Criticism of the prayer book or of any other form of the liturgy incurred a fine of up to 100 marks for the first time, 400 on the second offense, and life imprisonment on the third. People were required to attend their parish church every Sunday and every holy day, or they would be fined 12 pence. The royal supremacy had to be declared through an oath by everyone holding an office under church or crown. If you defended the spiritual primacy of the Pope over the monarch, you forfeited your goods, and if your goods were worth less than 20 pounds, you spent a year in prison. Serial offenders would be punished with a traitor's death. For the first decade of her reign, this law was not really rigorously enforced. If you were quiet about your religion, you were generally safe. During Mary's reign, Elizabeth had to hide her own faith, and so she was really reluctant to go too deeply into the spiritual lives of her subjects. The queen also didn't want to make waves in Europe. At the time, she was seen by much of Europe as the bastard child of Henry VIII, who himself declared his own marriage to Anne Boleyn null, though he did, of course, restore Elizabeth to the throne in his act of of succession. In the 1560s, Spain and France signed a treaty 
ending their disputes. So they were at peace with each other. And Philip of Spain and the Netherlands, who had been married to Mary the first, Philip had married Mary the first, um, took a very special interest in restoring Catholicism to England because he, of course, had been the sort of king consort. Um, and he saw it as his special mission that he was going to return Catholicism to England. And with him not necessarily being at war with France any longer, um, Elizabeth was really hesitant to do anything that would make waves. She was really vulnerable. And um, so she, she really didn't enforce the law that strictly. But, of course, she wasn't necessarily in favor of religious tolerance for Catholic. Religious tolerance as we know it today didn't exist then at all. But her theory instead was to starve the Catholics of their sacraments. So since all the schoolmasters had to take the oath of supremacy, young children would be brought up in Protestant learning. And eventually the priests would die. And so she thought Catholicism would die off with the priests and a new generation of Protestants would, would spring up and um, she wouldn't have to worry about it. But of course, <laughs> she neglected to figure into the equation the resourcefulness of the Catholics. William Allen, especially as an example, he was an Oxford academic who set up a seminary for English priests in Flanders. Within six years of its founding in 1568, Allen was sending priests back to England to nurture the Catholic souls. Um, in 1568, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was the great niece of Henry VIII, also sailed to England seeking protection from the Scottish Protestants who had forced her to abdicate. Elizabeth found herself in a very tough position as Mary was her heir presumptive until she married and had children herself. And Mary allowed herself to be a figurehead for Catholics who wanted to put her on the throne instead of Elizabeth, got all caught up in plots, both domestic and foreign, that would have killed the queen and replaced her with a Scottish Catholic. In 1569, there was an uprising in northern England, and while the roots were as much political as religious, the earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland rallied under a Catholic banner and heard mass in Durham Cathedral. The plan was to free Mary Stuart from her house arrest in Tutbury Castle and have some, quote, reform in religion, unquote. The Duke of Norfolk, who was already in prison for conspiring to marry Mary, Queen of Scots, had been implicated, and it was clear that the conspirators had tried to get Spanish aid. So the whole thing was ruthlessly crushed. Over 450 rebels were executed. The situation for Catholics wasn't helped by the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France in 1572, when mob of violence led by Catholics targeted and killed possibly as many as 30,000 people as it spread outwards into the countryside. It was set off as a reaction to the marriage of the king's sister to a Protestant, and many prominent French Huguenots were in Paris for the marriage celebration, and a group of assassins targeted them, which then, of course, spread into mob violence throughout much of France. Francis Walsingham, himself a Protestant, was in Paris at the time and barely escaped death. This would have a profound effect on him and his fear of Catholics for the rest of his life. Um, many French Protestants sought refuge in England, and they brought with them sto these stories of this brutal episode, which frightened so many English Protestants, horrified to see that kind of violence coming from Catholics. 
um, they became convinced that all Catholics secretly wanted a St. Bartholomew's Day massacre of their own in England. So by the early 1570s, things were starting to change for the recusants in England. There were very real fears of an international Catholic conspiracy against Elizabeth. Conspiracies at home showed authorities that no matter how much Catholics might argue that they could be both good Elizabethan subjects and good Catholics, their loyalty seemed to always be to the Pope over the Queen. And then the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth, condemning her as a heretic whose, quote, monster-like usurpation of the English throne had brought miserable ruin upon the kingdom, unquote. It officially deprived her of the right to which she pretends and absolved all, absolved all Catholics from any previous oaths of allegiance. Catholics in England were put in an impossible position, either obey their queen and have their souls sent to eternal damnation or obey the Pope and suffer a traitor's death at home. The bull of excommunication did more to damage the English Catholics than anything any Protestant did. It was originally sent at the request of the Northern Earls for the rebellion, but by the time it reached England, the rebellion had been crushed, and a lot of Catholics really resented the excommunication. So after the excommunication, of course, Protestants felt completely validated in their previous suspicions of Catholics. The Catholics were portrayed as the enemy within, though the official response was a bit more measured. Another parliament was called in order to flush out loyalties, and a new treason legislation was passed, which condemned anyone who questioned the queen's religion or her right to rule. It also became treason for anyone to reconcile themselves to Rome or to harbor anyone who had been reconciled with Rome. The act against fugitives over the seas demanded that anyone who left the realm since the queen had inherited the throne without permission needed to come home within six months or forfeit their lands and goods. And it also became treason to bring into the country any documents that were stamped by the pope. And finally, it banned any unused day, cross, picture, bead, or any, quote, such like vain and superstitious things blessed by the pope or a priest. Importing objects like a rosary, for example, would be punished by forfeiture of land and goods. In the midst of this, the Catholic missionary priests started coming back to England. Of course, I said William Allen started his seminary in 1568, and by the mid-1570s, priests were coming back a few at a time and then up to 20 or 30 a year. These missionary priests, once Elizabeth's government heard about them, were largely seen as a force of agents of the Pope, sent to overthrow the queen. In, in 1577, the first of these priests, Cuthbert Maine, was executed on five counts, which included bringing in an unused day and denying the queen as the supreme head of the church. He was sentenced to a traitor's death, but blessed, blessedly he was unconscious by the time they cut him down from his hanging, so he didn't have to go through the rest of the ordeal, which was drawing and quartering. Not pleasant. Then there was the Society of Jesuits, founded by Ignatius Loyola, a Spaniard and former soldier. In addition to being missionaries and ministers, they were also educators, and by 1580, there were 150 schools staffed by Jesuits throughout the entire world. They went places like the Congo, India, Mexico, and Brazil, and in many respects, they were actually seen as the face of the Counter-Reformation. And so when they started coming into England, the authorities were incredibly suspicious. 
The timing of their arrival in England coincided with that of Nicholas Sander in Ireland. Nicholas Sander was a prominent English Catholic who went to Ireland to help with the Spanish-assisted revolt against English rule. It looked as if the Jesuits were sent from the Spanish and the Pope in order to provoke revolt, and of course everyone was really suspicious about them. Another famous priest was Edmund Campion, who had actually risen in to prominence at Oxford. He was a deacon in the Anglican Church, and then he felt remorse. He left England in the late 1560s. He studied at William Allen seminaries. He was one of the first missionary priests to come back to England. And just before he left on his trip, he and fellow missionary Robert Persons found out that they were actually expected. The, the authorities knew that they were going to be coming. So they had to be even more clever than they at first thought they had to be. Campion entered the country in 1580. He pretended to be a jewel merchant, and he made it to London. But word of who he really was quickly spread, and the authorities began a search to find him. He uh, ignited a PR firestorm, as it were, when he wrote 10 Reasons, Arguments Against the Anglican Church. It was printed secretly, and 400 copies of it were found on the benches of St. Mary's Oxford at commencement in June 1581. He was eventually captured by a spy when he was giving a secret mass, and he was imprisoned in the tower. He was tortured several times, offered all sorts of offices in return for a retraction, but he refused. He had four public debates with Anglican opponents, and even though he had no time or books to prepare and he was still recovering from his ordeal in the rack, he apparently made his case so eloquently that all of the spectators in the court actually expected him to be acquitted. But he was convicted of treason, and in December 1581, he suffered the traitor's death of being hung, drawn, and quartered. So in the 1580s, things get even hotter for the Catholics when Elizabeth was persuaded that her more gentle way of dealing with the Catholics hadn't worked out very well. The act of persuasions made it an act of high treason to try to persuade anybody to become a Catholic. So, of course, the missionaries were committing treason. It was also an act of treason to become reconciled to Rome. And if you knew of anybody being reconciled to Rome and you didn't report it within 20 days, that was also an act of high treason. If you were caught hearing mass, in addition to a financial fine, you could go to jail for a year. If you refused to go to the local parish church, you were fined 20 pounds a month. If you didn't go for a year, you had to post a bond of 200 pounds for good behavior. And later legislation also made it illegal for a priest who was ordained abroad to actually even be in England. And if they were found, they were deemed a traitor. So it was clear that priests and missionaries needed information about where it was safe to enter the country, where they could stay, and who they could trust. And so a network sprang up of Catholic supporters who were an interme intermediary between the safe homes and the priests and provided cover for both. These men and women risked their lives to provide safety for the priests. And one such was Nicholas Owen. He was a master carpenter. He traveled around the country building priest hides in friendly homes. So he built these amazing hiding places, um, and he was an expert in math and architecture. His hides were so well constructed that even from the outside, when you lined up the bricks and the windows on the outside and then went inside the building, everything matched up. Um, his hides were just masterful. And in fact, one wasn't discovered until the 19th century when some children playing came across a, a hide that actually still had a mass set up at a makeshift altar. 
Um, so he was just a phenomenal builder and dedicated his life to, to protecting priests. Uh, he was he wound up being captured and executed. And even under torture, he actually never gave away his secrets of where all his hides, his priest hides were. So it's possible that someday um, we might still discover one. But he's, he's an amazing figure. Um, he's actually a saint now, I believe, as well. So this network of Catholics frightened the English authorities even more as war with Spain became seen as inevitable. The English knew that the Spanish were planning to invade, and the great fear was that the Catholics would spring into action and attack from inside the country to support any invasion. And so as the Armada approached with 130 ships and 19,000 troops, many prominent Catholics were actually put under house arrest or placed with other nobles whose loyalty was unquestioned. Even harboring a priest was enough of a crime to be punishable by death, and even being a woman wasn't enough to save yourself from a death sentence. In 1586, a butcher's wife from York, Margaret Clitheroe, was pressed to death on a toll bridge for her refusal to plead in the charge of harboring a priest. So it wasn't looking very good for the Catholics in, in England, I'm afraid. And there was a swirl of plots throughout the 1580s that made things even more difficult. In the Netherlands, William of Orange, the Protestant resistance figurehead, was assassinated. There were several plots to assassinate Queen Elizabeth, ranging from a solitary gunman who set off with a pistol and, intent, and an intent to kill, to, of course, the Babington plot, where the noble and prominent Catholics decided to free Mary Stuart and put her on the throne, killing Elizabeth in the process. Sadly, Mary wasn't as politically astute as she may have thought she was. Her letters to conspirators were intercepted, and eventually all the plotters, including Mary herself, were killed. Um, despite the decisive victory against the Spanish Armada in 1588, war with Spain continued for another 15 years, and with it, more plots. There was one where the royal physician Rodrigo Lopez, a Portuguese Jew who had converted to Christianity, had allegedly been paid by the king of Spain to poison the queen. Every plot made things more and more difficult for the Catholics. After Elizabeth died and James came from Scotland, there were hints that things might be easier for the Catholics, as he made some early talks about wanting to be more tolerant. But things quickly took a different turn. At Easter 1603, he responded to Catholics who didn't attend the official Easter service that, quote, those who won't pray with me can't love me. Later that summer, he refused to respond to an official petition of tolerance. So Catholics quickly became disillusioned with James. And, of course, the plot to blow up Parliament took hold, which, my friends, will be a different story for a future episode. So that's it for this week. Um, the book recommendation this week is called God's Traitors, Terror and Faith in Elizabethan England by Jesse Childs. It's a really interesting book that follows the history of one family, the Vorks family, uh, that lived in the Midlands throughout generations. They were a Catholic family. They were recusants. And it, it kind of follows them throughout 60, 70 years up to the gunpowder plot. Um, and and was a really interesting read. Um, so that's the book recommendation, and I'll put a link up on the website and the Facebook page, which again is facebook.com slash englandcast, where you can contact me, send me show ideas, or just say nice things. 
The next episode, I'm going to focus more on the official response to the perceived Catholic threat. I'm going to look at the life of Elizabeth's spymaster, Francis Walsingham, and how he built a modern espionage team. So hopefully you will come back for that. I hope again you're having a wonderful weekend, and I will speak with you again soon. Blow, northern wind, ascend, for maybe sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrich, that solely Sam leaves on sea. Menschful maiden of nicht fair and fray to fond In all this war flich won Burd of blood and of bone Never yet in Houston on Not somewhere in London When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.